I'm Simon Hartzell, and this is NAI Global's Diving Into Commercial Real Estate. Welcome to another episode of NAI Global's Diving Into Commercial Real Estate. You are joining us for part two of a two-part podcast with a firm called Valuation Alliance. This podcast is called Valuing Your Brokerage Company. And today I have Obi Wally, founder and managing partner, along with Fred Schmidt, managing partner. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Thank you, Simon. We're excited to be on today and uh, wishing everyone in, uh, within the NEI family staying healthy and safe during this time as well. Same to, to everybody on your end as well. So uh, let's, let's, Let's let's dive right into it. Let's Obi tell tell the audience a little bit about your background and and how you came up in the commercial or the real estate industry, I should say. Sure. So uh, my my background, twenty years in both finance and real estate, uh, started my career on Wall Street. Uh, was an investment banker. Uh, did that for a couple years and then uh, got an opportunity to join Sendent at the time. Uh, in their M&A group. They were a, one of the largest real estate companies and had a division that was acquiring real estate services companies across the country. So started as an analyst there and then uh, worked on uh, probably about 60 or 70 M&A transactions across the country and underwrote about four or 500 transactions overall during my tenure there. From there, I transitioned into the operating side of the business working kind of through the organization and then um, got a chance to work with Fred, who was the president and uh, COO of uh, Cold Banker Commercial on the operation side. And then in 2012, I went out on my own, started up my own brokerage company um, as a, as a, as part of the Cold Banker Commercial Network um, based in Manhattan, built it primarily through acquisitions, uh, forming partnerships, et cetera. And we grew to the second largest uh, company within the network with 10 offices and 100 and over 150 people. Um, we sold that business back in 2016. Um, so we kind of rode the wave coming out of the downturn. We're able to take advantage of uh, pricing for businesses on the lower end and rode it as the market priced up and then sold. Um, and then coming out of that, um, you know, after my non-compete expired, um, I realized that there was a there was a a void in the market um, within our industry where you had all these independent operators and owners and um, there wasn't really anyone or any entity or any business providing real guidance and kind of direction to these principals on understanding what their businesses are worth, um, helping them through the process of transitioning their business um, in areas of just you know succession planning. Um, selling their business, acquiring another company, et cetera. So I launched Valuation Alliance back in 2017. And um, honestly, the business really grew as a purely just word of mouth. Uh, and here we are two years later, and we've got you know, a client base that pretty much um, services the industry across the board, across the country. So we're, we're very excited about the growth of our business, we're very excited to work with firms in our industry. It's a passion of ours. Um, and it's a way for us to also give insight and guidance to a lot of the industry that's, you know, 
quite frankly, privately held businesses that struggle and 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 get rewarded for their success as well. So that's been our journey. Well, you guys have a have a great great background, and I can see these synergies between you and Fred to bring value to <clears throat> excuse me organizations. I I find from my my experience of talking with brokerage firms is a lot of these firms the top producer is the owner. So it's it's sometimes that they're they they're great brokers or or great at at putting deals together, but maybe not always the right person to be running the organization. I I, I share that because maybe you guys come across a similar experience or or something different in your experience. How do you see with with owners kind of managing managing a business but also being a top producer? Yeah, it's a very common common theme across the industry. You know, it's the uh, we we'll call it the player coach model, right? A lot of these businesses, um, quite honestly, start off as you know one or two individuals um, that are producers, and you know the business starts to grow. <clears throat> you start to bring in talent. You start to grow your business. Um, and you know, one of the biggest challenges is is that you get to a point in the in the growth of a business where you have to make a decision whether you're going to be focused on production and building your income stream or you're getting to a point where you're managing people and building a business. Uh, and I think that's probably one of the biggest struggles that we see in the industry is, you know, are you, are you building a lifestyle company um, where you can sustain as a player coach? And, and that translates to the impact it has on value as a business, or are you building a company, an entity where you have services and individuals that need to be managed and um, requires a lot more support as well and your time versus um, being able to produce and and stay at those levels. Um, I will tell you that, you know, most businesses are in that player coach, you know, kind of structure, right, where you have mm -hmm. owners that account for a large swath of the income. And, and that typically then translates into other other potential areas of concern as you're growing the business and potentially even looking for some sort of exit or transition because a lot of the value is tied to a small group of individuals and in most cases they could be principals as well. Do you have a, do you have a sense of where's that, that, that break point when you have as a player coach to kind of let go of the, the reins and start moving your clients to other, other, producers within the organization is there a is there a point or is there a metric that that's used to that you suggest that that these player coaches should be considering yeah and you know what we've seen um in the industry is is it really depends on the the makeup of your age your brokers right i mean are they more are they more senior producers tenured that you know, don't need much support and you can still continue to do deals. You don't have to manage them as well as much. Or are you bringing up talent, training them, investing time in them? And and that's really the litmus test, right? If, if you're investing your time and effort and bringing new talent in and, and developing talent, then you know, that number typically falls between five and seven. At that point, it's hard to be able to do both because, you know, you're really having to manage. Um, when you have a more diverse team of you know individuals that are seasoned producers versus new to the business um, that number tends to creep up to about 12 to 15 before you're starting to get materially 
impacted and have to make a decision to say, I can't keep going without having to focus my time and efforts on the business versus in the business. Well, and, and that, that brings up a good point because then I, I, I find, or maybe you could tell us how firms figure out what they're worth. Where's the, where's the value or what, what key metrics are they looking at to determine that, that, that value that they should be looking at for their firm? Yeah, you know, the general valuation process, and, and we're specifically here in this case speaking to brokerage services, um, is really, you know, the biggest challenge is your assets have legs. Um, and in a lot of cases, in most cases, those assets are independent contractors of the firm. Um, so, you know, valuation of a business is, is a function of how diversified is that revenue, how, um, how connected is that revenue from a stickiness standpoint to the business. So based on the services you're offering, the culture you've built, um, in some cases it's tied to relationships, right? A lot of, a lot of value in the relationships that are held with the business. Um, and, and those are variables that we look at, you know, in addition to other variables, size and scale of the company, you know, uh, ge geography, uh, market plays a big role, you know, how, how much, um, concentration and density is there in transaction volume wise. Um, so those all have a key factor into that specific valuation aspect. But one thing to keep in mind is that when you have a business where a lion's share of the revenue is being driven by, call it the principle, you know, if, if you're looking to monetize that business and you take the principal's production out, in nine out of 10 times, you're dealing with an illiquid asset. Right? There's not much value after you take that, them out of the business. Um, and so that's where the struggle ha comes in because we've talked to many businesses where you have a, 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 um, a company where 60, 70% of the revenue is coming from the shareholders. They're looking to monetize their business and they very quickly realize that. And if that monetization strategy is an exit, you know, looking at the end of your career, it, it's a reality check. Uh, because you very, they quickly realize that, well, my business isn't worth nearly as much as I thought it was. Because when you take me out of the equation, the valuation is, is pretty nominal. Um, mm -hmm. and that's, that's, that's the differentiation between a lifestyle company and what I call kind of building a real business. Um, and that's really where, um, people start to realize that, okay, maybe, you know, it, this, the way I built this may not have been the best way, but that doesn't mean you still can't monetize it. Just means that yeah. the monetization of it is at a different level than what was anticipated. Well, I, I really see the value in in what you guys offer because you're more than just, hey, we're going to come in, we're going to tell you what you're worth, and that's it. Like you're more of an advisory firm, third party firm, an outside set of eyes to these brokerage companies, and you're talking about things that I could probably probably say ninety five percent of companies aren't considering or even thinking about so there's a lot of there, you're bringing up a lot of good points which i think will hopefully resonate with our listeners and come across as things that they need to start considering i'm going to shift a little bit into where we're currently sitting in a socio-economic state and what companies were worth two months ago and what they're valued at today. Can you give a little bit of sense on how brokerage is currently being valued 
and and kind of the state or not to ask for a crystal ball, but kind of those those historical changes to where we're at today. Yeah, it's a great question. It's probably the top question that we get asked. We've been getting asked in the last couple of weeks, two or three weeks, is uh, where is this taking our valuation? So, you know, as we we are in an un, you know in uncharted territories, right? I mean, we've seen a impact to our business overnight. Um, transactions we were working on have come to a full halt. Um, activity on the acquisition side is just everybody's on hold. Uh, the unknown here is, you know, how deep and wide is this or, or how deep and narrow is this? Um, and so the unknown here is that, you know, valuations pre-virus, coronavirus, were trading at some health, you know, healthy levels for anywhere from four to four and a half X to as high as five X earnings. Um, you know, where does that sit today? Yeah, I mean, valuations can drop. You know, and the downturn, just to give you a sense, during the economic crisis coming out of 2008-9, valuations were as low as two and a half times for businesses. Wow. Um, you know, and so <clears throat> there just was no no real sense of strength and stability in earnings. We're coming into an environment where potentially there's no revenue for businesses with all these shelter-in-place orders. So you're going to see a significant drop and then coming out of that, the recovery. So that's a really difficult question to answer, but you know, my guess, and this is purely just an estimate because there's no comps right now to, to verify it, but you know, valuing a business in today's environment without having any sort of confidence or guidance in, in where the revenue stream is, you know, valuations could be as low as, you know, less than two times earnings. Um, you know, and so it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty scary time from that perspective, but that doesn't mean that, you know, obviously at some point we're coming out of this and numbers are going to get better, but, um, I don't see any transactions happening, and if they do happen in this environment, they're going to be distress sales. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you you think that that there will be some distress out of out of what we're we're going through? Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, like that's kind yeah, of a loaded I mean, question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it, the reality is is we're we're talking about the majority of the country being you know in a in a shelter in place. Um, orders from the from the counties and government um number one number two is if real estate is not defined as a essential business in those markets then you're pretty much in lockdown right so yeah. when you think about kind of what we've been doing the last honestly the last week and a half is talking to customers about what they should be doing immediately you know uh, essentially preservation of cash um cutting costs to to just essential costs working with vendors to defer payments because if if you think about it, you're talking about the potential of having zero income um, for 30, 60 days. Um, mm -hmm. And if you don't have the cash reserves to preserve your business, um, it's going to be challenging, right? So, um, so we're, we're kind of looking at this and saying, you know, here's our advice. Um, here's what we recommend. Um, but if there, if we think that if there are any transactions that occur during this time, there will be, structured around situations where businesses are unable to continue to operate. And that's probably the mm -hmm. biggest risk right now. And that's Not where the struggle. Yeah. No, it's a reality of, of but it's a reality. Yeah. It sounds like, yeah, it sounds good that you guys are, are having these conversations with clients because again, it goes back to you're the outside advisor. So you're helping to guide them through these unchartered, unchartered, times which everyone's hopeful is is 
short term and and temporary so you can get back to the the earnings level or the multiple multiple that that people were used to and and talk to us about that when when the market is kind of stable and and things are moving in the upward direction where do you see that multiple fall what's what's a, a good range sure. for sustainable firm yeah so you know typically the the industry standard um historically is you know brokerage companies trade on a multiple of earnings and historically those earnings range anywhere from three times to five times um and, and there's a lot of variables that go into that range but just as a overall kind of range it is three to five x so you know eventually it's going to come back to those levels um and at the peak they were trading at slightly higher than five x um just because the market was so strong and frothy uh, but that's mm -hmm. pretty much where we expect it to stabilize at. You know, at some point in the future, it'll come back to that trend. Um, but but that's that's the historical average of of where those trading multiples were. Yeah, you talk about trading. Tell 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 the audience a little bit about how you would describe earnouts and how that relates to the the M and A world. Sure. So you know, our business is a, A, it's transactional, B, it's a service industry, C, um, the revenue is tied to um, transactions and then your your individuals within the company that are trading or transacting in those deals are independent contractors, right? So the typical deal that's getting done in the market, and this is in a normal market, um, so, you know, A, companies get valued based on some sort of adjusted earnings. And adjusted earnings are typically a function of uh, normalized cash flow. So what do I mean by that? You know, so earnings is, is a, the definition of earnings is the EBITDA. Um, and, and EBITDA essentially is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, or what we call cash flow. So you take that, um, you put a multiple to it, and then typically you'll, the way the deals are structured is there's a cash component. Cash component is anywhere from I've seen, you know ranges anywhere from 25 to 50 percent, right? Um, and it's all a function of how healthy those cash flows are. And then you've got an earnout, uh, and the earnouts typically will run anywhere from two to four years. And so on the average, it's a three-year earnout, and those earnouts are pegged to performance of the business at the time of the valuation, um, based on what the purchase price was. So you have some performance hurdles you have to hit. Those performance hurdles can range anywhere from top line revenue to gross margins uh, and, and all the way down to earnings. Um, and in, in a lot of cases, the reason they do that is because that is, you know, essentially retaining the revenue stream to protect the downside risk of, of what the value of the business was. Because obviously your greatest risk is your assets could walk out that door and there's no protection mm -hmm. against that. And the only way to protect against that is through the year now. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes that makes sense because it's it's a it, it, and and I again I can see this tying back to succession planning where if you don't have a plan in place and you try to go through this valuation process, it's it's kind of you're you're missing something before you kind of get to that point of what's my company worth, or you're late in the game and making those decisions of all right, do I sell? Do I sell internally, externally? I, I could see that being a big part of what we discussed in our, our first podcast. So I could see the, the importance of the overlap between the two. 
Yeah, and in today's environment, you know, discounting the current situation, but typically what we've seen in the last six months is firms, you know, we're in an aging demographic, right? The average principal of a company is approaching their mid-50s. So we're going through a very interesting time in our industry where we're seeing, A, a demographic shift in ownership. Um, mm-hmm. And that's causing a lot of um, discussions on what are my options as a principal? A, I can do three things. So I can do three things. A, I can sell my business to a third party. But then you got to look at the market and say, well, who are those viable prospects to buy my company? And if you're a smaller company, those prospects are limited, right? Um, B, I can transition my business to the next generation of leadership. And, and that's another process, right? Now you got to go through what we, you know, what was talked about in the previous podcast. And there's a whole exercise to go through that. Or C, I just keep going and, you know, the business essentially dies with me, right, um, for lack of a better term. Um, and, and, and really, that's, that's where we're at. Um, and, and we're seeing a lot of this, a lot of these discussions where principals have come out of a downturn, have ridden a 10-year wave. You know, a lot of these owners don't want to go through this again, and here we are, right? Uh, because yeah, it took them yeah. a long time to get back to where they were to build the value of their business and, and grind it out and get to a point where they have the cash flows where they can now start thinking about things. But, you know, that's the challenge we're in. And, and, and hopefully this is a very short term, you know, impact to our overall business. But, you know, we're going to probably see a lot more activity coming out of this because, um, you know, nobody wants to have to go through this again. So we're going to, I think we're in for some really interesting times coming out of this uh, current environment. and probably see a lot of activity and a lot of a lot of discussions that are going to happen agree agree and it always makes me want to like i i, I want to like smack my forehead because i talk to a lot of brokerage firms and they say oh, i'm just going to retire in four years i i've been in the business 40 years and i'm just going to close the doors and i'm like you're leaving all that value on the table and that's your that's your plan but i you know it's each to their own but I feel like there's other options that are out there kind of like what you're alluding to and some of those, those options that people maybe haven't considered. So I appreciate you, you, you going over some of those options. Shifting gears a little bit. And I, I wanted to ask you, what's the synergistic deals? Can you tell us about that and what that means? Sure. Um, so, you know, probably one of the most common transactions that occur between two parties and, and um, are deals that are synergistic. Uh, and what that means is where you have a, a buyer that's looking to acquire another firm that has the opportunity to consolidate the two businesses and be able to eliminate redundancies. So, you know, and typically those redundancies are in your two biggest categories. Number one is space. So if you've got Two locations that are very close to each other. There's no reason to have two 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 locations within two or three miles of each other, right? You can easily consolidate those. And number two is space, and um, number sorry, number two is people. Uh, if you have redundant roles, and number three is um, just cost savings from the standpoint of you know insurance and technology for services and and other areas that where you just double you know paying for services twice, you can easily leverage spend there. So I'll give you an example of what that what that means. A buyer may look at a firm that has an earning stream of $200,000. You know, they peg value at you know, call it four times 200, 
Now, a buyer may say that, you know, this deal is highly synergistic to me. So what does that mean? If that company has, let's say, $150,000, $200,000 of expenses, and I'm just using $200,000 for a round number, and they can save, say, fifty grand out of that two hundred, so knock those expenses from two hundred to one fifty. The earning streams goes. The earning stream goes from two hundred to two fifty, right? Um, mm-hmm. At a four x multiple to the buyer, that's worth a million dollars, but to the seller, that's five x, right? Um, mm-hmm. So that's the difference in a synergistic deal. Is you'll see trade, you'll see transactions occur out there where some people say, "Well, I got a six times earnings." Um, and the first question I asked is, I said, well, who's the buyer? And, and what did they do to your company? Did they consolidate? Did they make some changes? And nine out of 10 times, the answer is yes, we consolidate. I said, okay, well then, you know, to you is a six time multiple, but I'm hundred percent sure to the buyer is probably a four X or 4.25 or whatever that number is, but it, it was much less mm-hmm. than six. Um, so that's really the synergistic transaction. And, and, and again, those advantages go to the buyer. So there's buyers out there that will pay what appears to be a higher value for a business when in fact, internally, it's probably right where market is based on the synergies that are incorporated into the transaction. That's interesting. And I'm sure, I'm sure firms and, and some that are listening, having considered those, uh, those, those, those overlapping synergies between the two firms and how it affects their, their, their value. When you're talking to firms, and maybe you can kind of get in more details about segmenting a purchase price or telling us the difference between, I have a firm and it, it consists of just brokerage or brokerage and property management. How does that affect the pricing? Yeah, sure. Um, so property management historically has been valued at a higher multiple than brokerage. and and Primarily, the reason for that is because of the stickiness of revenue. It's contractual. You've got contracts in place. You've got recurring cash flow streams, more stabilized. So, you know, when we're looking at firms that have both businesses uh, as part of their overall organization, we'll value those uh, and peg value to each entity based on um, what they contribute and, and obviously the higher value going to the PM side from a multiple standpoint. Mm -hmm. So, let's say you have as an example, a brokerage and a property management business, and both are generating the same cash flows, and let's just use the same number, 200000 each in earnings. You know, you could get a 4X for the brokerage and you could get a 5X for the PM. Um, so your PM business would be worth, you know, call it a million dollars and your brokerage company is worth 800000 um, And that's typically how we break those out and then we'll underwrite them accordingly. Mm-hmm. And, and you've given some you've given some good examples throughout throughout this podcast, and 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 I know there's probably a lot more details that go into it. But what are some of the pricing issues that you come across when you're you're speaking with firms or evaluating? Um, so pricing issues as far as um, coming up with the value or structuring the deal. Um, let's let's look at both. I, I think okay. you've kind of alluded to the, the 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 pricing, but when you're evaluating, I think in, in your due diligence, what are what are some of those challenges yeah, or, so, or issues? Yeah, so you know the the biggest challenge when you're um, underwriting deals from a pricing standpoint, and there's we'll look at it through two sets of lenses. Number one is during the valuation, 
is, you know, typically when you're valuing a business, you're looking at adjusted earnings. So the number one question is, what are those adjustments and how real are those adjustments? And do you want to give credit for those adjustments, right? Um, and, and that's that's the number one um, underwriting guideline when you're doing due diligence is let's validate the adjustments to make sure that it, the earning stream of the business is in fact what we believe it is based on the numbers we were provided and the feedback we got from the principals. So that's kind of from the valuation side. When it comes to structuring the deal, it's all about cash. Cash is king, right? So the number one issue there is how much cash can I get up front and um, how much is going towards the earnout. And and I will tell you that, you know, the driver of cash is really a function of how stable are those earnings, how stabilized, how diversified is your revenue stream, um, how much of that revenue is at risk based on concentration on maybe a small group of agents or a team um, outside of the ownership, right? Because um, there's a risk of fallout. There's, there's a risk of losing that business. So typically what you'll see is when you have a high concentration risk of earnings tied to, let's say, one or two individuals or a small team, it's going to impact your cash. You know, because unless, and what a lot of ways to alleviate that is you'll see deals where buyers may come in and say, well, we're going to allocate X to your business. If you're willing to lock up your people or this individual or this team, we'll give you more cash, right? Now, mm -hmm. there's, it's a double-edged sword because in order for you to lock that individual up, you have to talk to them. And in most cases, you're going to have to probably allocate some dollars to them as well. Yeah, there's it's 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 a lot of what you're taking from succession planning, kind of in, implementing or over time putting into these these brokers' day to day business, so they don't have to have these conversations all at once during a a just valuing their company or selling or, or whatever it might be, it's kind of these conversations can go over time to lead to an easier transition or as you're doing, if it's, if it's a, a pure M&A, you've kind of done all the upfront work. So that's why I find it's important for if a company is considering or hasn't gone through the succession or valuation process, they really need to talk to you guys. Like that's the bottom line because there's a lot of things that need to be considered based on what you're telling me here today. And I think it's important for, for firms to kind of take those next steps. And, and like you mentioned, now is a great time to be proactive and consider what's your, what's your, what's your company structure and what's it worth. Absolutely. I, I agree with you. Well, let's, 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 let's jump into, we talked about a lot of details here from very high level. And in a second, I'll let you give your contact information to our listeners. But two, two quick fun questions. In the shelter-in-place environment we're in, have you gone to your favorite food or developed a new favorite food in your diet? Oh, um, so my favorite food is pizza. Um, pizza lover. Um, and so we've gone from ordering pizza in to making it at home. So, uh, uh, it hasn't changed. We're just eating more of it. Uh, but, um, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, my, uh, I've been, uh, 
we have three kids at home, so we're trying to make that. You know, like just last night, as a matter of fact, we all, uh, the three of us, the myself and my wife and our three kids, we we made pizza together. So it was it was great. And so we're trying to make it uh, as engaging as possible with uh, trying to keep our kids busy as well. So that's awesome. And and last question, you just won ten million dollars tax free. Where do you allocate those dollars in commercial real estate? In in today's environment? Um, yeah, yeah, that's a, <laughs> it's a challenge. Because I could say, hey, um, tell it to me four weeks ago, and it'd probably be. A yeah, answer. yeah. I mean, so so I still I am a firm believer in kind of the generally, you know, I've invested in industrial real estate. Um, and I still believe that given just the general current environment, I still believe it's a good asset class. If I had to invest it in any asset class, it would be there. Um, uh, just because, you know, I think there's going to be, you know, again, the whole supply chain logistics, um, the ability to probably have more demand on online shopping and the need for having that type of product to be able to move it around and probably more demand for it. So, if in today's environment, that's where I put the money, invest in that asset class. Perfect. Um, Perfect. Great. Well, I, I, Obi, Fred, again, I appreciate this was, this was a lot of information between these two podcasts condensed into a short amount of time. So I, I really encourage our listeners to, to take the proactive approach, reach out to you guys. What's the best way if, Firms are, are are considering any of the succession planning or or valuing their firm. How do they they reach out to you, Obi? What's the best way? Sure. Um, you know, my you can reach me directly at my email at uh, Obi at valuationalliance.com. Um, my phone number direct call is nine seven three eight six five five eight two one nine seven three eight six five five eight two one. And you can also reach out to our website at valuationalliance.com. And we have the ability to kind of just uh, have a contact form there so you can contact us through there as well. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you very much, both again to you and Fred. Any questions about NAI Global, feel free to email us at help at naiglobal.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>